Welcome to Grit, a monthly podcast focused on stories of grit and greatness from the streets to the suites. Grit is a forum for stories about people who possess uncommon work ethic, drive, and passion. They are movers, shakers, role models, overachievers who are under the radar. I'm your host, Margaret Trimmer, Vice President of Strategic Partnerships for Delta Dental of Michigan, Ohio, and Indiana. I have studied, cultivated, and curated grit over my 30-year career, including stints in the newspaper business, education, nonprofit management, and now corporate leadership. At Delta Dental, I direct corporate giving to build healthy, smart, vibrant communities for all, the places where people want to live, work, and play, places where true grit can be found. This month, my guest is Mario Nanis, an Ann Arbor-based entrepreneur who is also the president of Washtenaw Families Against Narcotics, known as FAN. Mario is in that role for powerful personal reasons. His son, Yanni, sadly lost his life to a heroin overdose in 2018 when he relapsed on the road to recovery and could not get back on track. Yanni is one of so many people who started on the downward spiral of addiction after suffering an injury and getting a legal prescription for OxyContin. Mario, welcome to GRIT, and thank you for your willingness to talk about something so difficult and so personal. You're welcome, Margaret. Mario, before we talk about your family's journey, why don't you tell us a little bit about Yanni? Who was your beautiful boy? Yanni was an incredible human being, played AAA hockey, his girlfriend in California described him as a hopeless romantic. Um, when I asked her, tell me how so was Yanni a hopeless romantic? And she said, well, I've dated a lot of guys, but not one of them uh, picked as their favorite movie, The Notebook. And she told me that your son, that scene, Margaret, that I sent you the link to about Sam a bird. Um, my crazy son Yanni recreated that scene um, with his girlfriend. And I wish I had that kind of romanticism in me, but I don't. My son did, and he was an incredible human being. So yeah, he was uh, an aspiring model. He had looks to kill, and he would—he was the last person you'd ever think would succumb to uh, an addiction to heroin. And it's interesting, and I know we're going to get into this, Margaret, but uh, he was embarrassed over it. It's all about the stigma. He felt it. And so, anyway, that's my kid. So... Talk a little bit more about how he found his way into abusing these substances and what the road to rehab and recovery was like for your family. As his, his descent into addiction is not an uncommon story these days, sadly. So how did it start? Yeah. How did you guys navigate it? So, you know, he... Uh, we noticed changes in behavior. We noticed isolation. 
we notice changes in physical appearance. All of these things, you know, to parents who are going through this, this is commonplace. We were taking him from one doctor to the other, trying to figure out what was going on. And uh, he wasn't coming out and saying, I have an addiction problem. Um, you know, and I was sending him, I come from a healthcare background, so I know a lot of doctors and I was sending him to, you know, digestive a physician that specializes in, you know, internal medicine, um, multiple physicians. And I, I can remember it like it was yesterday. A friend of mine is a psychiatrist and I explained all of this to her. And she said, after she heard me, she said, are you sure Yanni doesn't have an addiction? And I said, no, I, yes, I'm sure. I'm sure he doesn't have an addiction. Um, lo and behold, we, uh, the way we found out, Yanni never did fess up. Uh, finally, after seeing, watching my kid going from looking like Tarzan to, to his physical appearance, appearance deteriorating to the extent that I had, I had had enough and I started calling friends, just personal friends. And I called one friend in particular and I said, is there something you want to share with me? You know, because Yanni's not doing so well. And I knew there was a problem, Margaret, when this kid started crying. And he excused himself from, he was in mixed company. He called me back and he said, um, Yanni told me he has an addiction to heroin. And he made me promise not to tell you or Jackie and Margaret, you know, at that moment, I, I mean, I literally asked this friend, did he use those words, heroin addiction? And, you know, you don't have to be a healthcare professional to know that that's a monumental problem. And so he said he did. And, you know, from there, um, we all work together to get to convince Yanni. It was primarily through his friends. It wasn't through mom and dad. It was primarily through that friend who um, felt horrible, okay? And uh, we got him into rehab at a, an amazing place in Utah. From there, he went to sober living in Southern California and um, he was clean, and I don't even like that term. You know, we don't refer to diabetics as being clean from sugar, but he abstained from all drugs for 15 months. He was the model person in recovery. He was a sponsor uh, in California, but he reached out to me 15 months later. So this is after being clean, I'm sorry, again, abstaining, and not using for 15 months, he reached out to me to let me know he had relapsed. And Margaret, the text message he sent broke my heart because it was filled with guilt. So share with us 
what that last text message exchange between you and Yanni was. Yeah. Yanni sent me this text. I remember it like it was yesterday. Dad, I relapsed the other day. I'm so sorry to tell you this. It breaks my heart, which is why I didn't call you. I'm going to get this out of my system. I feel like I'm not done using. I left CASA this morning and I will not be returning. Other than that, I love you so much and words can't express how grateful I am for everything you've done for me on my recovery journey. Love, Yanni. Now, there are all kinds of problems with that text message. I don't have to tell you, Margaret, you can feel the stigma, the shame, the embarrassment over having relapsed as though there was something wrong with that, that he was letting me down, himself down. Casa was the sober living home where he was staying. He said, I won't be returning. And I, I asked him hours later why he wasn't going to be returning. And he said they had an abstinence you know, rule that if you relapse, you're out. But I had talked with the owner of that sober living home. And he said, I want Yanni to come back here. But, you know, I view him like a third son. And when I told Yanni that, he didn't want to go back over the embarrassment of having uh, relapsed. And, you know, he died a few days later, not long after texting me, alone in a hotel. He overdosed. I did my best to reach out to him to no avail. He went into isolation. And so how did this whole experience serve as a catalyst to Families Against Narcotics in Washtenaw County? I had been attending um, meetings for FAN and driving from Brighton to Frazier to learn more and to educate myself, to become as much of an expert as a lay person can become on addiction and recovery so that I could be of support to my kid through this process. And when he died, I thought I got to do something near nearer to where I live. And so that's what served as a catalyst to starting Washtenaw Fan. I went to friends of mine in um, that com in, in Washtenaw, um, Bridget McCormick, who's Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, a few other people, they opened doors for me. Um, a lot of people in that community reached out saying, let's do this. And here we are, three and a half years later, almost four years later, and there's a lot of good things happening. So stigma, shame, yeah. such powerful inhibitors to recovery and success. Can you talk about what stigma is exactly 
And how do stigma and shame work against recovery for those with substance use disorder? Yeah, so there's a uh, Danish, I don't know if he was a philosopher or a writer of some type, but the, the bottom line, Margaret, is he said, if you name me, you negate me. And I think, you know, that says it all. If you are identified as a junkie, as a addict, as an abuser, you name the term, uh, you're going to be less apt to seek help. And I know from people I interact with at FAN, when we're assisting people getting families connected with outpatient facilities, peer recovery coaches, clothing. When I interact with those folks, it really bothers them to have those labels associated with them. And I will tell you that in my view and in the view of a lot of other people, it's the single biggest inhibitor to people raising their hand like they do with any other disease and saying, please help me. It is why Yanni didn't want help. He was too embarrassed. I find myself struggling often, actually, to grab the right people first language to use to describe those who are dealing with substance use disorder and the problems associated with it and the family challenges. Um, I certainly don't want to add to the stigma or the shame, um, but we trip. These are yeah. new terms that we're starting to embrace and understand. Talk about what you're actually doing to help our community reduce stigma and improve outcomes. The main things you can do is to start talking about it like you and I are doing here. Um, don't isolate, get out, share your story. Talk about it the way you do when someone in your family has been diagnosed with cancer or someone in your family has been diagnosed with diabetes. I will tell you, Margaret, when I speak publicly about this, I oftentimes, um, in order to ground everyone and, in, and to connect us uh, through an umbilical cord, okay, so that we're all on the same page. Before I introduce myself, I simply ask everybody out there, how many of you, your life out there, your life has been impacted by someone with an addiction? And if you're treating someone with an addiction, it doesn't count. So if you're a social worker, a physician, a psychiatrist, uh, a psychologist, it doesn't count. I'm talking about in your immediate circle or your extended circle, extended family, friends, please raise your hand. And I will tell you it's never less than 75%. And I will, sometimes I'll take it a step further and I will add, but we don't talk about it. And I said, if any of you out there wanna mention why you don't talk about it, raise your hand. Sometimes almost 99% of the hands go down, but every now and then I get someone. And one time I asked a woman, why don't you want to talk about it? She said, I don't want anybody knowing I'm a bad parent or that I raised 
and add it. So we have to change the words we choose. Um, and, and I think more importantly than getting as prescriptive as using certain words, just think before you speak. How would you want to be treated if you walked into an ER with some sort of disease that you needed help with? Would you want to be labeled or would you just want someone to say, come on back here and we're here to help? And, you know, um, you know, we're, you know, Margaret, we just uh, we're going to give away the stigma workbook um, on February 22nd for free. It's titled I'm Still a Person, The Stigma of Subst Substance Use and Power of Respect. It was primarily written by a professor at Ohio State University. Her name is Dr. Audrey Begun, but she has ties to locally. She graduated from the University of Michigan with her PhD from the School of Social Work at U of M in Ann Arbor. She even has a dog named Maisie, um, but her, her blood runs blue. Um, we've been working with Dr. Begun now for 14 months to put this together. And there are two versions of that workbook. One is for public consumption, and the other is very much a textbook that will be used in the top social work schools in the country to start getting people, think healthcare professionals, to start thinking differently about their choice of words. And um, I'm very proud to say that um, one of the edits we're making, Margaret, to this book this booklet is that underneath Audrey's name, it's going to say with help from people in recovery and their families, because we got this to them and they were enormously helpful in all of the quotes that are replete throughout the entire work workbook on letting the reader know this is how I was talked to, and this is how it made me feel. As of the 23rd, you can go to the FAN corporate website, just Google Families Against Narcotics. You can go to the Washtenaw Families Against Narcotics website. You can order a copy, copies as many as you want. Mario, I'm gonna go back to the family challenges and the mm -hmm. words that we use and the, and the struggle with with stigma. Um, as you know, I'm wrestling with these issues in my own family. And I, I don't know if I shared with you, but I have a cousin, a very close cousin, who lost two of her three adult children to heroin overdoses. Not a family that would be the stereotype of a family dealing with substance use disorder. And the one thing I say a lot, um, and I truly believe, is that addiction is a family disease and recovery is a family blessing. It's a family disease because in many ways, we all must look closely at our own behaviors to understand when dealing with somebody in recovery, what are the triggers, what are the traumas? And we all have to adjust our behaviors in order to help that person heal. And that's a heavy, heavy lift. Um, we don't have a lot of time to do more than touch on it, and I don't think either you or I are experts in mental health, but 
is there an intersection and what is it between mental health and substance use disorder? Yeah, so I would take it one step further. Not only is it an individual disease, a family disease, it's a community disease. This getting our heads above water on this uh, problem of these record number of overdoses is not going to um, be reversed without everybody contributing, everyone in the community, law enforcement, um, you know, people in, in public office, the schools, business owners, the, you know, the universities. We get a lot of help from the University of Michigan, from Washtenaw Community College in our community. But to so it's a community disease. To specifically answer your question about that intersection between mental health and addiction, it is there, okay? Um, and uh, I know that FAN keeps data on, uh, the, you know, through their peer recovery coaching, the types of mental illnesses um, that they're seeing with the people that they help get connected into resources. It's primarily depression and anxiety. Okay, and there's also a significant amount of trauma, be it verbal abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse. And the point here is that if you don't take care of that stuff, you're not going to find yourself on a path to healing. So, you know, some of the things we offer at FAN at, at our chapter, exercise for recovery, yoga for recovery. We're piloting trauma-informed yoga for the reason that I just communicated to you. Free bus passes. That it doesn't have anything to do with the mental health side of your question, but people in recovery oftentimes don't have wheels. So if you ask for help in that regard, we work with the Ann Arbor Area Transportation Authority to help get people that stuff. But without a doubt, you have to address the mental health part of this, or you're not going to get to where you want to be. And certainly isolation and stress and the mental health challenges that have that have hit us very hard during well, the pandemic. Margaret, um, Margaret, I got to say this. I was at a meeting where Blue Cross Blue Shield was there that one of the top executives talked about a study that they did on the single biggest determining factor in relapsing. Their research showed that it was social isolation. And he said this two years prior to COVID. So think about where we are now. Social isolation is already a monumental problem for people in recovery. And then due to COVID, we've had some mandated isolation. And is it any wonder that COVID is leaving this wake of death through um, addiction, mental health, overdoses, etc.? I asked you to be on the show named Grit, Mario, because I believe you have grit. Do you believe you have grit? Yeah, I think I have grit, but you know who my heroes are? are people battling this disease. Because it ain't easy, Margaret, as you know. And if you can come through that on the other side, you've done something very special. 
uh, very special. So I think I've got some good things going on. I try every day, but as compared to people who find their way through this insidious disease, um, I hold them in the highest regard. Thank you, Mario. What, uh, what a story. And thank you for listening. Grit. We can't seem to teach it. We know it when we see it. There's a lot we can learn from it. And that's why we talk about it here on Grit. Please tell us what you think. And please tell your friends about Grit. Until next month, I'm Margaret Trimmer.